direct way, a kind of more uh, organized way. That was my, that was my uh, resolution, my New Year's resolution, was to be a more organized teacher. Okay, I broke my, te- I broke my resolution, just wanted to get that over with, because, you know, if you're waiting to break your resolution, it just, there's too much tension around that. But I did, uh, as you may know, publish this book on January 1st. Buddhism in the Twelve Steps Workbook, uh, and there are copies back there, and I'm hoping people will uh, get it to, to um, because it's, this is what I'm going to use for the class for the year. And I'm also going to use it in my six-week class series that starts uh, in the end of February. It's going to be here, so it'll be a more compressed version of going through the book. And it's something that for several years I, I've... <coughs> Well, for quite a while, people have asked me to do some kind of a workbook and sort of said, you know, I read your book, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. So, so I tried to kind of put all the things that I use in my workbooks or in my, in my workshops and my retreats into this book. Um, so I hope you'll find it, find it helpful. Um, and it does... Uh, retail for $15, but you can get them for $10 here because I want people to get them. And uh, so I'm trying to be, that's my practice of generosity, non-greed. Next month I'm going to charge $25 for them. It's my practice of greed. I want to just see which one really works. Yeah. You know, sometimes people think something's better if they char- pay mo- more for it. It's like 10 bucks. can't be any good, right? So maybe I should. Maybe I'm going to have to change that. Yeah. So. Well, so, um, so the, the way this book starts is, is with uh, about 30 or 40 pages, just about mindfulness and, re- and the... A connection of mindfulness and recovery. So I'm going to read some bits of it tonight, but I'm also going to, going to ask you to do some some of the exercises in the book uh, with each other. Uh, but um, so the, the, then the, then it goes into the twelve steps. So uh, you know the the class has always kind of mirrored that form anyway. We start by meditating and doing mindfulness practice, and then we talk about recovery and the steps or Recovery in Buddhism, and um, so I, I think I'll, I'll leave my uh, prelude, my preface, at that, and move into the the sitting session. So we'll be meditating for about thirty minutes. In case you're watching your watch, you can trust me. I'll be watching my clock. I rarely meditate too long. <laughs> well, I don't know. Can you? Yeah. So, just beginning by settling into your posture. If you're sitting on a chair, just sitting upright, letting your feet rest on the floor. If you're sitting on a cushion, again, just creating a sense of balance in your posture, noticing the alignment of the 
head and neck and shoulders. And gently closing the eyes. Or you can just lower your gaze if you're not comfortable or you prefer not to close your eyes. And bringing the attention inside. So as soon as we come into stillness, with our eyes closed, our perception changes. You might notice your body more, or you might notice your emotions, your mood, or some thought. So we'll begin with some intentional relaxation, relaxing the muscles in the face, the jaw, the eyes and the forehead. Relaxing the shoulders, the arms and hands. And notice the sensations in the hands. A place with many nerve endings, very much alive. And softening the belly, letting the chest be open. Relaxing the large muscles in the back. As you breathe, you might feel the whole torso expanding and contracting. So as you exhale, relaxing any tension. Moving the attention through the hips and pelvis. Relaxing the legs and feet. taking a few moments just to feel the whole body as a single object sitting. And noticing that within that single object there are many different sensations.
just holding these two perceptions at once in the mind requires a subtlety of attention that helps us to quiet the mind. Now bringing the attention to the breath. Might take a few moments to just feel the whole breath. And the breath enters the body body expands and then contracts as the breath leaves. This miracle that our body takes life from the air Our body knows how to do that, even if we don't. Even if our minds don't understand the process. So feeling the breath at the nostrils, feeling the breath in the belly as it rises and falls. Letting the attention come to rest on one of those points, either the tip of the nose where the air comes in and out, or in the belly. rises and falls with each breath. So this then becomes our focus, our primary object of meditation. You might find it helpful to make a soft mental note with the breath, saying to yourself, in, out, if you're following the breath at the nostrils, or rising, falling, if you're following the breath at the belly. This just helps us to stay with the breath, with that primary object.
natural for the mind to wander when we're trying to pay attention to the breath or any other object. So our practice is to observe that, to notice when thinking is happening and to come back to the breath. Since it's a natural process for us to get lost in thoughts, there's no need to judge or criticize ourselves when we realize that's happened. We just acknowledge it. Oh, thinking is happening. Oh, I'm remembering yesterday or I'm planning tomorrow. or I'm trying to figure this out. And you just realize, oh, I lost the breath. Time to come back. When we come back to the breath, we're really starting again. We kind of relax again. Often the thinking process it triggers more tension again in the body. So when you come back to the breath, you might just let yourself ease back in. When we see this tendency to get lost in thought, even when we're trying not to, we can see our powerlessness over our own minds. And this is step one in meditation. admitting we're powerless over our minds, over our bodies as well. This doesn't mean that we're helpless. Just as we're with our addiction, we don't have to act on it. In the same way, we can begin to change our relationship to thoughts.
with mindfulness, we are first trying to develop the capacity just to know that we are thinking and to let it go. This might not seem like much of an accomplishment, but it's actually a radical shift from our ordinary relationship to thoughts.
whatever arises strongly for us, this can be the object of mindfulness. If some sensation in the body becomes strong, we can pay attention to that, not try to change it, fix it. Just be with it, allow it. With sounds, the same. This practice isn't about arriving somewhere, but being with the ever-changing experience, experience of life, of breath, of body and mind.
Well, thank you for meditating with me. No matter how you judge the last 30 minutes, you were here, you were practicing. The critical first step of this practice is to show up. Probably the hardest part, probably the hardest part about recovery, too, is to show up. I think we have this tendency to set standards and kind of inevitably the standard to keep getting raised as we might grow. And so uh, we never kind of can live up to what we think we should be doing. Uh, But I think it is so important to remind ourselves that just showing up and doing this work, this practice, one day at a time and recovery work one day at a time is enough. So I'd like to take uh, time if there are any questions about meditation practice, either about the instructions I gave or about any uh, difficulties you might have had. There's someone raising their hand right there, Max, and we were going to use a microphone since uh, no, back no, just take the microphone. You may stand up if you wish. Hi, my name's Larry. Hi, my name's Larry. Does that work? Yeah. Doesn't sound like it's on, but okay. it could be. Is it? Okay, good. Someone's under the speaker knows that. Great. Thank you, Larry. Hi. I really enjoyed that meditation. Got nice. quite a bit out of it. I'm not feeling up that well, but I felt great in the meditation, so yeah. I don't know what that says. There's something about transcending pain or something. Mm-hmm. Maybe. But, um, I just finished uh, nine days uh, at uh, Occidental, or uh, ten days, ten days, with uh, the Vipassa Dominant group. Mm-hmm. Um, got a lot out of right. it. Is that your you first know? retreat, or have you done it before? No, about ninth, I think. Okay. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> a pro. Something just struck me, and I uh, thought you might want to comment on it. And in your discourse, uh, your guide was really good today. Uh, and it, I don't know if it compelled me to think this, but Suzuki Roshi wrote a book, Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Indeed. And he was quite specific about we're always back at the beginning. So yeah. that was my question. Yeah. Are we always back at the beginning? Um, I, don't, I don't like to say always, generally, about anything, because uh, there might be an exception <laughs> to that. But I do think of each, that each time I sit down to meditate, it is like the artist with the blank canvas or the writer with the blank piece of paper. No matter how many times you've done it before, now is this moment. And yes, you've got training and preparation, but there is this moment that you have to engage, and it's a fresh new moment. It's always a new moment. And, uh, you know, I was just saying to... Um, Sarah, who, who's a long-time staff member here, how uh, I feel as I'm getting older that, I mean, this sort of sounds obvious, but that my mind is changing, but actually in ways sort of that feel strange. Like I feel like I'm having different mind states or moods than I've had. And it's, you know, because you kind of want to arrive. <laughs> uh, okay, am I done yet? Kind of. 
Um, but uh, yeah, I mean that's uh, that's kind of the you're always starting over because everything is impermanent. So yeah, I mean that's the that's the idea. And, uh, you know the the idea of the the title Zen Mind Beginner's Mind. What I really like about that, as he says in the beginning of the book, is that in the expert's mind, there are very few possibilities. In the beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. You know, and I think that's true in recovery as well. When we become experts in recovery, we can get very narrow-minded about how, how it works and how to do it. And it's actually one of the reasons why I, f- I think a lot of newcomers buy my books <laughs> but old timers <laughs> maybe get I'll, I'll often hear this from people oh I gave your book to my sponsor you know <laughs> I'm like really I thought it was supposed to go the other way around but it, often it goes that way yeah. so, thank you Larry any other thoughts comments questions We're going to take a break, um, but maybe uh, if there aren't any comments yet, maybe I'll uh, I'll start in with the material for the evening because I think I've got enough to get us started anyway. Um, yeah, uh, that was a a good uh, beginning there uh, in terms of kind of a question and. And so I, I want to start by, and I'll read some of this, but I'll probably just talk about it too, just about why we start with mindfulness. Um, so I, I'll see what's in here. I, I'm always, I always have to check what I've written to decide whether I need to say anything more. Uh, mindfulness starts with being present being aware of what we're experiencing through our five physical senses and what's happening in our mind. Our natural tendency is to get caught up worrying about or planning the future or remembering the past. The first thing we try to do with mindfulness is notice these tendencies and start to train ourselves to bring our attention back to what is happening right now. This alone is a huge, huge task because of our deep conditioning. Planning the future based on our experiences in the past is a survival strategy developed eons ago by our ancestors. Our capacity to do this is what sets us apart from other living things, and so our instincts resist any effort to act otherwise. Nonetheless, these habits take us away from a direct experience of life and obscure a whole range of truths, from the psychological conditioning that drives our behavior to the elemental realities that Buddhists call the Dharma, truth, or natural law. With mindfulness, we not only observe what's happening in the body and mind, but how we react to things, how a sound triggers a thought, and a thought triggers an emotion, and an emotion triggers a physical response. We begin to see the bigger picture, the process by which we construct our understanding of our world and who we are. This deconstruction of our experience is vitally important for addicts in or trying to get into recovery because it allows them to see how their addiction works and that there is a way out, that it's not inevitable or unstoppable. 
The process by which we become addicted is a mind-body process that can be reversed. And awareness is the first stepping stone in that process. That's why step one of the 12 steps starts with the words, we admitted. Because that admission is the bringing into our awareness the truth of our condition. Until we are aware of our condition, until we come out of denial, no recovery is possible. Step one is essentially an act of mindfulness, a clear seeing. So yeah, the, I think the very term denial implies a lack of awareness. So in the Buddhist language, we can call that delusion, very similar. Um, and when you look at how the, the Buddha talks about how suffering develops, he talks about dependent origination, which actually happens to be a 12-step process. <laughs> it's not a process of recovery, it's the opposite of that. And the way that we fall into that is that we start with ignorance. And in Buddhism, we have to sort of we have to define how we use the word ignorance. It doesn't imply like stupidity or even so much a lack of information as a lack of seeing. So, uh, not seeing the truth. And so we, you know, when we first engage uh, with intoxicants, if that's your addiction, might be something else. We don't see what's happening. We don't see the process of desire and grasping and clinging that leads to habit, that leads to addiction. What we see is the pleasure that we get from it and the, the cessation of pain that we get from it. And that's what we, we focus on in a narrow way and sort of push aside the rest. And, and so the, the ignorance is that we don't understand this bigger picture, this broader picture. We don't understand what we're getting involved with. And, and truly, for from, from many of us who started this, uh, start our, our addiction started at a young age, we really don't understand. You know, we don't, just don't get it at all. I was, um, I don't know where, I was hearing somebody talking on the radio about addiction and about something they had, stupid they had done with their car when they were a teenager. And it reminded me of, my first car was a Volkswagen, and, I, and you know I was in a band, and I uh, we had a, a a gig at Lehigh University, which is in my hometown, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And the it was a really it was one of those ice storms that night, which is always great when you're you know a teenager drinking at a fraternity party and going to drive home after that with your guitar, and my the, my windshield froze over, and if you ever had one of those old Volkswagens, the windshield is just, it's like almost, it's really thin. It's not like that kind of glass that we have on Nuke. And I, I wasn't very, I, I was intoxicated, but I also 
was really stupid, you know. It was like the things that you do when you're young, you know, because you're ignorant. And I took a full bottle, a can of beer, thought I would crack the ice. Well, I did. <laughs> crack the ice and, and the windshield. And it just, I don't, you know, so it wasn't just ignorance about addiction, it was in, ignorance about ice and windshields as well, so... <laughs> You know, but our, you know, addiction is, is really more than just uh, denial. It's also, it's an active effort to not feel. You know, it's an active effort to alter our mind state. And so in that way, it's really sort of aggressively non-mindful, you know. It's really assertively non-mindful. We really don't want to feel. You know? and, and for many of us, that's, that's a real significant impulse and, and not an unreasonable one. Uh, I don't know whether we're more sensitive or, you know, I mean, who knows? You know, whether uh, certainly more, certainly many addicts have experienced trauma, but many non-addicts have experienced trauma too. So... It's not, I don't, certainly not, not interested in making excuses for, for addiction, but, but whatever the causes, clearly we don't want to be present in a, in a really full and authentic way. And being intoxicated is a way to be present in an altered way. I mean, you know, in certain ways, you know, the, certain stages of intoxication are kind of heightened states, right? Uh, I mean, certainly, uh, smoking marijuana for me was a way to enjoy certain things more. Um, junk food, for instance. That's, <laughs> but, uh, but it was very selective, yeah. That's the thing. That's, we're, we're very selective about what we want to experience. You know, it was, if my memory serves, and that's open to question right there, my memory being what it is, or what is isn't, um, the word hassle really came into the lexicon as a common term right around the time when people started to smoke pot a lot in our culture. Because when you're stoned, everything is a hassle. <laughs> Things that would ordinarily just be, okay, I'll just do this, become a big hassle. Because we're very selective. It's like, oh yeah, I want to get high and really experience life. Well, certain parts of life. You know, I want to experience music and sunshine and hanging out with my friends. I don't really want to experience work. <laughs> you know, I don't really want to be present for that. So mindfulness doesn't sort of, it, 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 in a certain way, it doesn't have that kind of appeal that, that um, doesn't offer that kind of uh, uh, out that, that some form of intoxication can give us. It's asking us to receive whatever is arising. But what it gives us is a capacity 
to receive that in a balanced way. And that's the power of mindfulness, one of the powers of mindfulness, and one of the things that makes it so precious. That, yes, it opens us up, but it also helps us to be with what we are open to. And in fact, I would say, when I, when I say mindfulness, I think that's too limiting a term because when we practice meditation and when, really when we practice mindfulness in a serious way, we're including the concentration. The, 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 you know, that's the formal term for it, but uh, I think the expression calm abiding is one that I find much more appealing these days. Uh, because the calm abiding that, c- that comes along with mindfulness meditation gives us that settled feeling, cooled out feeling, that allows us to be with even the unpleasant, what would be a hassle if we were stoned. You know, so as we work into a recovery process, as we begin to work the steps, there is this this process of surrender, this surrendering to what is, and and uh, this tool then gives us this additional power and energy to do that in a way that makes it really a rich experience, uh, a fulfilling experience, not a not um, just a matter of gritting our teeth and, and uh, or white knuckling it, as we say. So, um, let's see if I can. Yeah. So, so I'm going to talk a little bit about um, about developing a practice, and, th- and then maybe we'll take a break. So, uh, as I said, uh, you know, kind of starting to work with this book, uh, you know, I, I, wanted, I, I really made a big push in December to finish editing it and get it out January 1st because I wanted to start the year and start this class with the, with the book and kind of have a, a sense that we're kind of working through uh, this material and, and the steps uh, together from Jan- January and it could have started in February, I guess, but it's a little bit of that compulsive thing that it's got a step, first step has to be in the first month. It just wouldn't be right. Um, and, so, and so part of this, part of the, what I want to do, and, and I'm really pleased to see that there's a good-sized group here tonight, is really encourage you all to make a commitment this year to your meditation practice. And... Um, so, ordinarily, at the end of one of my retreats, I suggest that people, besides trying to show up for their meetings, if they do 90 meetings in 90 days, that they do 90 sittings in 90 days. But I'm going to up that now and make it 365 <laughs> sittings in 365 days. All right, let me see. All right, I'm going to give you one day off a week. So that will say, just, just put it at 300 sittings, okay, for the year. And, but who's counting, right? I mean, 
in, in any case, I, I want to, so, so this month, uh, part of what I want to do is, is talk a little bit about developing a practice. So I'm just going to read this little section of the book that's called Developing a Practice. <laughs> I try to be really literal with this book, you know. So. Many people take a meditation class and then have a hard time developing the discipline to maintain a regular practice. There are some internal qualities that help and some external elements. We need to be committed to our practice. Why are you practicing? Have you seen the value of it in your life or in the life of others? Have you been inspired by something you've read or someone you've studied with? Has a friend or relative gotten something out of it? Or do you just intuitively sense that this is what you need in your life? Think about what it is that interests and inspires you about meditation. Perhaps write some of these things down. Absorb deeply this longing. Take it in. Let it become a part of you so that there's no doubt, no ambivalence about practice. This deep personal sense of the value and importance of practice can be a resource for you, a touchstone. This commitment is called intention, and it needs to be understood not as something we have to do or we've failed, but as a basic guideline for our lives. It's not helpful to set goals of perfection. Rather, whenever we notice that our commitment is slackening, we try to reinvigorate ourselves. Just as in the meditation, when the mind wanders, we come back to the breath. When our larger life wanders, we come back to meditating. Set a goal, perhaps, to meditate six days a week. If you come up short, don't beat yourself up. This is about awareness. Just notice if you didn't make it this week and recommit yourself to next week. Notice, too, if you are making meditation into a job, another unpleasant obligation, or if you are creating more pressure on yourself to live up to some standard of perfection. We have to be careful not to try too hard and not to slack off. We look for a balance, a middle route between striving perfectionism and lazy apathy. If you are like most people, at times you fall into one or the other, or even both of these. That's natural. That's human. If you get angry with yourself about it, you're just creating more problems. Can you accept your, quote, failure, unquote, and start again? Tips for practice. Set up a place in your home devoted to meditation. This can just be a corner of a room or a small extra space or alcove. Put your chair or meditation cushion in the corner and perhaps a small table with some special objects. Having a space devoted to meditation acts as a reminder to practice and reinforces the practice when you sit there. That was one. Two, schedule meditation into your day. Before you go to bed at night, decide when you're going to meditate the next day. You might have to get up earlier or leave some gaps in your schedule. You can meditate on a break or at lunchtime at work. You can meditate before dinner. You can even meditate before bed, but that's not ideal because it tends to condition you to fall asleep in meditation, which is already hard enough to avoid. (laughs) Three, commit to meditate every day, even if it's only for one minute. This commitment helps you sustain your practice. It reinforces the idea that consistency is the most important thing, not perfection. Four, find a meditation group and or teacher. 
Nothing reinforces practice like regularly joining others to meditate. Just as with recovery, it's hard to do alone. Take advantage of the support that's out there. So, there you go. I hope that gets you started. So, we'll take a little break and come back and uh, we're going to do some interactive work. A couple things I want to say before the break. I just remembered I should say some things before the break. First of all, as you may know, Spirit Rock does not pay me to do this work. And I am a professional meditation teacher, trained, as it happens, at Spirit Rock. But anyway, um, I depend upon your donations. That is the point. So we call this Donna. Uh, There's baskets out there. I like to say that when you come to Spirit Rock, they get you coming and going. So when you come in, (laughs) they take a little something, and on the way out, we ask you to give something. So uh, it's really important to see this practice not as just, oh, i got to give some money to the teacher, but really about an expression of appreciation, an expression of your own generosity. Each of us has different uh, capacities financially, and it's not about giving some amount. It's about experiencing that practice of giving, enjoying the practice of giving, enjoying supporting something that you care about that's helping you. So, So investigate that, explore it, and appreciate it and enjoy it in the moment of giving. One of my favorite things is when I'm giving the dana to just realize, ah, now. That feels good. The Buddha actually talked about the joy that you feel before you do a skillful action in anticipation, the joy that you feel in doing it, and the joy that you feel in remembering that you did it. Which actually doesn't sound very mindful, because we're just supposed to be in the present, not anticipating and remembering. But that's what he said. At least that's what the texts say. All right. A few things that are coming up. A trauma and mindfulness class. There you go. For those of you who may be interested in that, uh, January twenty seventh to twenty fourth. That's a uh, what? I don't know what day of the week that is. Monday morning. Monday morning. Thank you. Ten a.m. to twelve p.m. Are you in that class? Okay, great. Thank you. Uh, feeding your demons, transforming our suffering into compassion. James Barrows and Aaron Sullivan. Saturday, January 18th, that's a day long. Uh, Another day long, Saturday, February 8th, anxiety and mindfulness. Man, they have treatments for all of our problems here. It's really, it's great, you know. So uh, I hope you will, uh, you know, make Spirit Rock one of your spiritual homes. It's a wonderful place to come, a lot to uh, benefit just from coming. Every Monday night, they have a wonderful class here and... um, and just a place to come and have some time with uh, people who are on a similar path. So we'll take a break. I really hope that you will uh, meet someone during the break. If you're sitting beside someone you don't know, you might introduce yourself. And uh, I'll ring a bell in a few minutes to come back. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.